Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, our head pastor, Dr. Rhett Payne, studies the book of Romans. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. This is part 13 in the series titled, Can't You Read the Sign? Romans 7, I'll start reading at verse 7. My sources include Stuart Aliot's The Gospel as It Really Is, R.C. Sproul's The Righteous Shall Live by Faith, a commentary on Romans, John R.W. Stott, Men Made New from Romans 5 through 8, Kent Hughes' Romans, Righteousness from Heaven, and then Bob Deffenbaugh's Studies in Romans, The Righteousness of God. So, Romans 7, starting at verse 7, this is the Word of God. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law... But when the commandments came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, this is a hard word. Give us grace to understand it, to apply it to our lives, that we might truly embrace your law and love your law. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What is it about rules, laws, that stirs up something awful inside of you? When I was in high school, long, long time ago, okay, 1971, there was a a lot of negativity surrounding any sort of obedience to authority. Some things never change, right? Right? I mean, it was near the close of the Vietnam War, and about that time, there was a rock group that came out with a song, the rock group Five Man Electrical Band. You may not know a song by them, but some of you will remember this. They came out with a song that I thought was pretty funny, entitled Signs. Anybody remember that song, Signs? (laughs) It was about that time that I was fighting a losing battle with my father about growing my hair long. I eventually won that battle... Partly because I went to college 750 miles away, but uh, eventually I won that battle. But thinking back, I'm not sure if it was more about rebelling against my father or caring about how I looked. Probably a little bit of both. A friend of mine says, laws were made to be broken. Anybody ever thought that? Probably a lot of you can understand that. At any rate, if you don't remember the song, it goes like this. And the sign said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply. So I tucked my hair up under my hat, and I went in to ask him why. 
He said, you look like a fine, upstanding young man. I think you'll do. So I took off my hat and said, imagine that, huh? Me working for you. Sign, sign, everywhere a sign. Blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? (laughs) Things really haven't changed all that much in 50 years, have they? For example, the law of God says, don't do this. But something inside of me and every one of us says, hmm, I think I'd like to do that. It's just the way we are. You see, there are sins that are looked upon as something good, even desirable. It's definitely true for the unbeliever. I mean, after all, in this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I am unashamedly pro-life. And that is not a political statement. That is a biblical statement. Actress Michelle Williams can state, as she did at the Golden Globes two weeks ago, that she is grateful to live in a country where she can choose whether or not she wants to keep her baby and even imply that she wouldn't have won an award or had success if she hadn't had the choice to abort her baby. Listen to this quote she said from the Golden Globes. I wouldn't have been able to do all of this without employing a woman's right to choose. And it is her right to say that because it's the law of the land. But the law of God says you shall not murder. And if you haven't done your research or observed an ultrasound of a baby in a mother's womb lately, then you may not know that abortion is murder. Now, if you don't agree or if you've had an abortion, then don't lose me because here again, even Christians have had abortions. So listen carefully. You can be forgiven for the taking of a life. The grace of God is greater than all of our sin. But my concern is that Christians may be tempted to view sin as something good, something desirable, just as Eve saw that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food and desirable for gaining wisdom. God's law consistently receives bad reviews from the world, while sin is championed all the time with great reviews. The law of God is looked upon with disdain, even with tolerance, while sin is thought to be quite appealing. In other words, if we have to give something up, for God's sake we will, but only reluctantly. In our text, Paul admits that this was his own past experience as far as the law of God was concerned. And when he came in contact with the law, two things happened. If you're following in your outline, it would be very helpful. Two things happened when the Apostle Paul came in contact with the law. Number one, he realized that he was a failure. He realized that he was a failure when measured up against God's standards. Two, he admitted that his introduction to the law actually stirred up within him the desire to break the law. (laughs) I mean, think about that. It stirred up within him the desire to go against the law. And come on now, I know a lot of you can relate to that. I mean, if you're on a highway and it says 55, you're thinking, 55? I want to go 65 or 75. Why do I have to go 55? So we we all relate to this. So this morning, our text is one of the most emphatic biblical statements on both the ugliness of sin and the beauty of the law, the beauty of God's law. Our text is there to convince us that the law is a wonderful gift 
a wonderful gift from God, one that the believer can and should delight in. And that sin, listen to me, sin is a horrible evil. It is a horrible evil which the world would be better off without. So let's look at two lessons this morning, two questions that come out of our text. And the first is this, is the law evil? Is the law evil? No, the law is not evil. Paul had to learn that there was nothing wrong with the law, but his contact with the law brought him to a place where he recognized that there was something wrong with himself. Something wrong with himself. Look at verse 7 again. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So again, Paul was saying that he didn't know that there was anything wrong with coveting until he came in contact with the law. And so he did not previously recognize that he was guilty of coveting. So look at verse 8, Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, how did he find that out? When God's law showed him that he was a sinner. He discovered that he was guilty of coveting, and yet the command to not covet stirred up within him the desire to covet even more. He says he experienced dimensions of craving that he had never known before, which is why it's not unusual for someone to say, you know, I think I struggle with temptation more now than I ever did before I was a Christian. I've heard that before. I've said that before. And if you're a Christian, you probably can relate to that. Once you become a Christian, the enemy wants you. He wants to turn you back his way. So he's doing everything, everything he can to trip you up and make sure that you feel the full force of temptation. So when a believer is unaware of the rules, it's easy to think, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I'm okay. I'm doing great. But as soon as you become aware of the rules, sin inside of you will come to life. So why did God give us these commands, these rules? It's pretty simple. God gave us the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the moral law, so that you and I would know his will, do his will, and live. But because of the law stirring up sin within me, the actual effect was that we disobeyed the law, and then we died. Look at verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. So, look, you can't blame this on the rules, because according to our text... The law of God is holy, righteous, and good. The law of God is holy, righteous, and good. You want someone or you something to blame? Then blame it on your evil and depraved nature. And we all have it. We all have an evil and depraved nature. Look at verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So because of disobeying the law, you are now out of your master's favor and doomed to die. And you would have never been like this if it had not been for the rules. Sin could never have gotten so stirred up within you without the rules. So what are you to do? Are you to go to the master of your house and and say, hey, what gives you the right to put these rules in my life? If you had not given me the rules, I wouldn't have broken them. And my response to that is, yeah, right. The rules are holy. The rules are just. The rules are good. So the rules, the laws of God are not to blame. 
It is your own depraved nature. I mean, admit it, your own depraved nature that is at work within you, which is so deceitful that it actually took hold of a holy thing, and by it, it worked death in you. The good news is, for the believer, all of that's in the past tense. It's all in the past tense. So, first lesson, first question, is the law evil? Second question, is the law responsible for my death? Is the law responsible for my death? Now, what's being asked here in verse 13 is the result. And look at verse 13 for a moment. It says, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. So what's being asked here in verse 13 is the result of the confusion between the evildoer and the instrument. Stay with me here. How often have people in this country confused the one who pulled the trigger with the gun which the evildoer fired when that evildoer took the life of another person. After all, many people like to say that if you want to stop violence and crime in our cities, then you need to get rid of all the guns, instead of dealing with evil in the heart of the criminal. So it is with sin. Paul's question indicates that there were some who wanted to do away with the law in hopes of solving this problem of sin and death, when all the while the source of the problem lies elsewhere. Blaming the law for death rather than blaming sin, is like watching a policeman appear at the scene of a murder only to take away the murderer's weapon and then release the murderer with a pat on the back. We don't like to admit it, but sin is incredibly evil. The fact that sin would use the law to kill us is more evidence of the sinister nature of sin. So look at verse 8 again. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. All right, now, coveting is which commandment of the ten? It's in the top ten. In the Ten Commandments, which one is it? It's the last one. It's number ten. So why did Paul choose, why do you think he chose to to highlight number ten? I mean, of all the ten, why didn't he choose another one? Well, I think it's because he thought there's a connection between this command and a lot of the other commands. I don't think it was random on the part of Paul. He chose it for a reason, because he knows that coveting is this yearning, this desire to possess or to have something that doesn't belong to you. All right. I believe Paul chose this commandment about coveting for significant reasons. Three reasons, if you look in your outline. Number one, coveting is a matter of. Of the heart. Murder and stealing, I mean, those are visible sins. You're not going to miss a dead body or something that belonged to you that got stolen. Coveting, though, is a sin of the mind and the heart. You can covet, and no one will ever know about it. Legalism tends to focus on the externals, the things we can see, while true Christian liberty is, about, is a matter of the heart. That's why I think he picked it. Number two, coveting is one of the characteristic sins of the flesh. You know, we like to blame Satan for a lot of things. And he is, a, he is an evil, evil person, an evil entity. But the fact is, your flesh and my flesh is wicked to the core. We have these appetites which oftentimes come into conflict, real conflict, with God's revealed will. These appetites or desires are oftentimes forbidden lust, and sin typically overpowers our flesh by appealing to these lusts. 
So, coveting is one of the characteristic sins of the flesh. And then the third reason is coveting is a root sin. It's a root sin, which is often the cause of other sins. In and of itself, coveting appears to do no harm to anyone. I mean, if I choose to have a desire to have your car instead of my car, or have your house instead of my house, who's to know? The point is, God put coveting in there because he knew lots of times those sinful desires provide the motivation for stealing. And yes, even the motivation for murder. To put a stop to coveting is to nip it in the bud. So, honestly, I don't think we take this sin of coveting seriously enough. Do you realize how much of our culture has built coveting into the social values of the day? I mean, think about our culture for a moment. I mean, radio and television giveaways and game shows train us to covet more money and more things. American advertising considers itself successful if it is able to produce coveting in you. Bottom line, our culture would have us believe that sin is a beautiful thing. And the law of God, God's commandments for life, well, that's ugly. They kind of flip it back and forth. So once again, on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I don't have to tell you, but I will. There is vehement opposition on the part of pro-abortion or advocates who, who are trying to just pass any legislation that would limit the freedom Limit the freedom to do what is not only sinful, but downright abominable. I mean, there have been, in 2019, 345,672 abortions by Planned Parenthood. That's just by Planned Parenthood. That's 950 abortions a day. To state what Scripture says about life being a divine gift from a divine creator is to interfere with the rights of individuals to live any way they want, any way they please. So sinners do not want any laws which prohibit their sinful lifestyle or which even define their activities as sin. Any scriptural reference to abortion as a sin, and look, not the unpardonable sin, but a sin nevertheless, is written off as narrow, primitive, and prohibitive. It really is no different today than it was in Paul's day or any other period of time in history. Unbelievers, unbelievers despise God's law and God's revelation. In short, they hate his law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're in Romans 7. So, so turn backwards to Romans chapter 1 and listen to verse 32. It says this, although, verse 32, chapter 1, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Which reminds us, if we didn't have God's revelation letting us know what sin is, we would not know sin to be sin. And if this is true, and it most surely is, then the law of God is of great importance, not only to those of us who have lived, but for Christians today. Not just those who have lived before us, but for Christians today. And that's why sin is evil. Sin is sinister. While the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good. Yet the purpose of the law is to drive us to our only hope. And what is our only hope? 
I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments even. How many of those have you broken in the last week of the ten? And that kind of puts us in a position of humility. We can't do it, Lord. That's what we say. We, we, we have no hope here. And he said, exactly. That's why you need me. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need a savior in Jesus Christ to drive us to the only way out of the law's clutches into the arms of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when you embrace Jesus, when you embrace his gospel and embrace the love of Christ for you, then you will embrace God's law. It's a crazy thing. That law that that you look at and you try to keep and you go, I, I can't do it. And you throw yourself upon the Lord Jesus in his mercy. And then something changes in your heart when you do that. When the gospel takes hold of your heart and saves you and you are forgiven of all your sins, past, present and future. There's a joy that is unspeakable. And that joy makes you turn back and read the law and go, I love this law. I love this law because this law is truth. And I know that by God's grace, he will enable me to fulfill this law. And when I don't, when I fail, he will forgive me in his grace and his mercy. You know, the law of God should be our treasure. I don't know if you've read your Bible before. And if you have, you'll know that throughout the Psalms, the psalmist talked about how much he loved God's law. Why would he say that? Because he knew that the law is not there to, to prohibit freedom, but to protect freedom. The law is there from God to watch out for us, to show us his love, to care for us. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Psalm 119, verses 97 and 103. If you'd read that out loud with me, I'd appreciate it. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. And in just a moment, we're going to sing from Psalm 19. And this is a song that's in your bulletin. I've got the NIV translation. You don't in front of you. But you have the, the words of Psalm 19 right in front of you. And this is what we're going to sing in a minute. And I want to read it before I pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. That's Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10, which we'll sing in just a moment. And I hope this week you'll do some reflecting on the fact that God put his law to correct us and so that we might embrace him and he enable us to love his law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you put protections in our lives. The law of God is there to protect us. We don't a lot of times believe that. But Lord, you have put prohibitions in our life. You put commands in our life to keep us from hurting ourselves and those we love. So help us, Lord, to embrace your law, to do like the psalmist and meditate on it day and night. Help us, Lord, to embrace and love your law. And thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. 
Because, Lord, we can't keep the law. We are, we are sinners. We are evil. We are depraved. And so we need your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for the abundant grace and mercy we've received in the person of your Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray all this in his name. Amen.